Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, this morning, if you haven't realized yet, it is student weekend. Um, And we are pausing our series in the book of Hebrews to turn to the book of Ephesians to discuss the armor of God, something that I feel is very practical and applicable for the graduates as they go off to college or join the workforce uh, to armor up with the armor of God and to stand firm in the faith. So first I want to say that it is an honor and a privilege to bring to you the Word of God this morning. And I would first like to start by introducing to you the book of Ephesians. Obviously, we've been going through Hebrews, but now we're jumping into the sixth chapter of Ephesians, but we haven't gone through the first five. (laughs) So I'd like to introduce to you first the book of Ephesians. It is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. His primary concern in writing this letter is to explain to the believers in Ephesus the spiritual blessings that they have in Christ. In verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then he goes on in chapters 1 through 3 to explain all of the blessings we have in Christ. And chapters 4 through 6 to explain our subsequent response that we should have to the blessings that we have in Christ. So chapters 1 through 3 explain the blessings. Chapters 4 through 6 are our response to the blessings. That is the outline of Ephesians. It's a rather simple one as well. And so in chapter 6, we are dealing with how Christians ought to live because of the blessings that they have in Christ. First, we must understand these blessings before we can understand what Paul says here in chapter 6. So I'll do my best to summarize them for you this morning. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul says that believers have been predestined by God, that they have been redeemed from their sins by Christ. We've been given an inheritance, namely heaven, We've been secured for eternity by the Holy Spirit. We've been given new life in Christ, the freedom from our sins. We've been indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who gives us all wisdom and understanding of the things of God. Those are the blessings that we have in Christ. Because of these blessings, we ought to live in a certain way. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul says, to live live your life in a manner worthy of, of the calling to which you have been called. So he transitions from the blessings to our response. He also says in chapter 4, to put off the old self of unrighteousness and to put on the new self of righteousness, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that brings us to chapter 6 here, the armor of God, and he begins in verse 10 by saying, finally. This is a transition statement. He's going to transition into a discussion of spiritual warfare. In verses 10 through 13 of chapter 6, Paul gives a general exhortation 
to believers to prepare for spiritual warfare. And in verses 14 through 20, Paul expounds upon this exhortation by giving detailed instructions on how we are to prepare for this spiritual warfare. So verses 10 through 13 of the passage are general exhortation. Verses 14 through 20, detailed instructions. And so in verse 10, verses 10 through 13 of chapter 6, Paul says, finally... This means that because of all that has been said before, that all of the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, because we have the very Spirit of God Himself, we may be puffed up and prideful. So Paul says, finally then, do not be prideful. Do not be strong in yourself to win the spiritual battle. Don't lean on your own understanding, but be strong in the Lord. Because God has blessed you with so much, we ought to live in a certain way, worthy of the calling. So finally, Paul says, because you cannot live this life worthy of the calling on your own, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Again, this is Paul's general exhortation to the believers in Ephesus. It's his big idea, if you will. And so the big idea this morning is to stand firm in the faith, we must put on the full armor of God. That is the main point Paul is trying to get across in this passage. And I hope to explain to you this morning how we ought to do this. The Greek word that Paul uses, which is translated in verses 11 and 13, to stand really means to be unwavering, to persist, to persevere. So the Christian life is going to be full of trials and temptations that threaten to knock us down and to forsake the faith. And were it not for the complete armor of God, as put forth in this wonderful passage, were it not for the complete armor of God, we could not persevere until the end. But praise God that he's given us a spiritual armor that we may persevere, that we may stand firm. Before any good soldier armors up for battle, he must understand the nature of the battle that he is in. Paul recognizes this, and he gives us here three principles regarding the spiritual warfare that every Christian will face. In verses 10 through 13, the first principle we see, principle number one regarding spiritual warfare, is that God is the source of our strength. God is the source of our strength. Notice in verse 10, Paul says, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The Lord is the object and the source of the Christian's strength. He does not say to lean on your own strength and your own understanding. This is the fault of what is called asceticism, which basically means to inflict punishment upon your physical body every time you sin. To avoid sinning, I'm going to, in essence, hurt myself when I sin. It's the same idea as uh, when there's people that have those rubber bands on their wrists, and every time they think like a negative thought, they'll snap themselves on the wrist, that they may stop thinking those negative thoughts, 
somehow. Paul addresses this way of life in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. Speaking about human fleshly efforts to stop sinning, Paul says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value. So God alone is the source of our strength. Principle number two regarding spiritual warfare, is that we have a supernatural enemy. We have a supernatural enemy. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6. In verse 11, Paul identifies the devil as the primary adversary to the Christian. And in verse 12, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, we do not wrestle against other people but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, the devil has power to influence. Look around at our government and our society, our culture today, and you will see the evil that pervades our society. Our enemy is not the people, though, but it is the depraved ideologies of the devil. Things like abortion, the LGBTQ movement, the hookup culture, all of which God calls an abomination. These are the things that the Christian must wrestle with, which all come from a supernatural enemy. Principle number three regarding spiritual warfare is that the armor must be put on entirely and permanently. Look at verse 13, Paul says, to take up the whole armor of God. He doesn't say just take up the helmet or the sword or the shield. He doesn't even say to take up maybe five of the six. No, he says take up the whole armor of God. It must be put on entirely. The one unprotected area of a soldier in battle is going to be the primary target of the enemy. That's where he was vulnerable. And so it is with the Christian. Wherever the Christian is lacking the most, you can count on the devil doing all he can to exploit that weakness. So take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you may withstand, as Paul says, in the evil day. Now some may say, well, if you tell me when the evil day is, then I'll take up my armor. Just tell me when it is. How wrong an approach to this passage. The evil day is not just one day. The evil day is every day that there is evil in the world. Every day since the fall of Adam until the return of Christ. And so the evil day has continued for the past 6,000 years or so. Hence the permanence of the armor of God. We are to take it up every day that there is evil in this world every day until Christ returns. So now having seen the general nature of the Christian's battle, Paul moves on in verses 14 through 20 to discuss specific instructions regarding how the Christian ought to prepare for these battles. In these seven verses, Paul lists six pieces of armor in one behavior that illustrates seven principles for the Christian's defense against the schemes of the devil. Again, if you're taking notes, I'll repeat that. Six pieces of armor 
and one behavior that illustrate seven principles for the Christian's defense against the schemes of the devil. And so moving into the first piece of armor, Paul says in verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So first, we're going to take the first half of that verse, the belt of truth. This is the first defense for the Christian. It is to hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the truth. For the Roman soldier, the belt was a very important piece of armor. You think about clothes today. We have like a t-shirt and shorts. We have athletic clothes, things you can move around in rather easily. Well, the Roman soldier didn't have a t-shirt and shorts. He had a tunic, which was basically like a dress, but guys wore it, and it went down to the uh, mid-thigh or to the knees. So you can, you can imagine why this might be a problem for a Roman soldier who was in battle. It would get in the way. There would be loose ends everywhere. And so the Christian then, well, before we get to that, the belt, the belt was meant to tie up all the loose ends, the loose-fitting garment of the Roman soldier. And so the Christian then is meant to tie up all the loose ends of life with truth. What does it mean to tie everything up in truth? Paul uses the Greek word aletheia, which is translated truth in this verse. But the Greek word emphasizes something much more than what is just true. It emphasizes a commitment to the truth. It is a mode of life in harmony with the truth. To fasten on the belt of truth is to live wholly committed to the truth in every area of life. It is to live a life free of hypocrisy. Just as the soldier's loose-fitting garments would leave him vulnerable in battle, so any area of life in which the Christian is not committed to the truth is a vulnerable area for the Christian. We see an example of hypocrisy in the Pharisees who had a much higher regard for themselves than they had for the truth. And we see how Jesus addressed them in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus says, to the Pharisees. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We see this playing out in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve, and he said, Enjoy the land. Eat the fruit of every tree, but do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For you will surely die, says the Lord. Yet we see in chapter 3, the serpent being Satan comes to Eve and he says, Eat the fruit of the tree. You will not surely die. Well, we know that Eve ate the fruit and so did Adam and they both died. Sure enough, God was right. Imagine that. God is a sovereign being. He created the heavens and the earth and all their inhabitants. Being the creator of everything, he also determines what is true. And what God determines is true is absolutely true. It is not relative. It is absolute truth. 
And absolute truth as revealed to us by God acts as our moral compass. When we forsake absolute truth and embrace relative truth, meaning I have my truth and you have your truth and they have their truth and he has his truth, that's not truth at all. When we embrace relative truth, we are taking off our belt. Our garments become loose-fitting. We no longer have an authority. We lose our moral compass, and we elevate ourselves above God himself. But God's truth is absolute truth. It is our sole authority, and it is our moral compass. In John 17, 17, Jesus offered up the high priestly prayer, and he said this, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So take up the belt of truth. In the truth, we are sanctified. And in the truth, we stand firm in the faith. The last half of verse 14, Paul says, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is the second defense for the Christian in spiritual warfare, is to walk constantly in the righteousness of Christ. Walk constantly in the righteousness of Christ. So the actual breastplate that a Roman soldier would wear was a very thick piece of metal that covered the chest and the abdomen and protected the vital organs of the soldier. And so your heart being in your chest... The heart was seen as the center of one's thoughts and personality. They didn't really have the uh, medical knowledge that we have today that we think with our brains and our head. They thought that the heart was the center of one's thought and personality. They thought that the abdomen was the center of one's emotions. And so Paul's point is this, that if your thoughts and your emotions are both covered by righteousness, you can't sin. You are completely protected And we know that sin comes out of the heart by what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So sin comes from the heart. But if the heart is righteous, then so are your actions. It's really quite amazing how simply Paul puts it here that if your thoughts are righteous and your emotions are righteous well then your actions will be righteous as well it is important to realize however that Paul is in no way indicating that we can have a righteousness of our own instead the righteousness of our breastplate is the righteousness of Christ talking about Paul uh, Paul and his own self-righteousness Paul says this to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. He says, I, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the doctrine of imputed righteousness that he is describing. The doctrine of imputed righteousness basically says that there upon the cross, when Jesus was crucified, our sinfulness 
was put upon him. It was imputed to him on the cross, and he paid the debt that we owed for our sins. And at the very same time, his righteousness was imputed to us. And now God sees sinners as having the righteousness of Christ. There was a transaction that took place upon the cross. Our sinfulness to Christ and his righteousness to us. But this does not mean that we are perfectly righteous today in this life. We are perfectly righteous in the sense of justification. We are justified completely, forgiven from all of our sins. But in terms of our sanctification, we have a long way to go. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And so to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. This means that when the world tempts us, to sin. We know the righteousness of Christ, how he would respond, how he would behave, and we act in a manner corresponding to Christ's righteousness. We do what he would do. It is to make decisions to walk constantly in the righteousness of Christ. That is the breastplate of righteousness. Moving on to verse 15, Paul says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So this brings us to the third defense for the Christian against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm upon the gospel. Stand firm upon the gospel. The shoes worn by Roman soldiers were not just typical gym shoes that we have today. Actually, cleats are pretty close to what they wore These shoes had many spikes protruding from the bottom that would dig into the dirt and it would give the soldier sure footing to stand firm in battle, not slipping or falling. Similarly, the Christian must have sure footing in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. The firm ground upon which we stand is what Paul says is the gospel of peace. What is gospel of peace. Well, the word gospel simply means good news. So then the gospel of peace is simply the good news of peace. Peace here is not used to mean that I can just sit back, relax, drink a Coke, eat a bag of chips, watch some TV. That'd be nice. But no, we are at war, Paul is saying. We are at war, and the peace that Paul is speaking of here is the peace accomplished by the gospel. Peace between God and sinners. Watch the flow of what Paul says earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, how he describes this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul demonstrates here that first we were sinners. We were enemies of God, children of the devil, he says, vessels of his wrath. That is the punishment for our sin. It is God's wrath. And in our sin, we have rebelled against God. In our sin, we are enemies of God. But here's the good news in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the good news, is that God saves sinners. God's grace makes us no longer enemies of God and recipients of his wrath, but he makes us children of God and recipients of his grace. He forgives us of our sins in his grace when we place our full faith in him, our full confidence in him for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the gospel, the good news of peace between God and sinners. And it is the firm ground upon which we stand. It is the firm ground upon which we stand because we did not obtain salvation on our own, but it was God's grace by which we've been saved. The next two verses of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is our firm ground because when doubt comes creeping in telling us that we are not good enough for God's grace that we are not saved that we have fallen away from grace we can stand firm knowing that it is God alone who has saved us he alone has forgiven us of our sins through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. We did nothing to earn salvation, and therefore we can do nothing to fall away from salvation. That is why it is the firm ground upon which we stand. It is God who saved us. Moving on, verse 16 of Ephesians 6, Paul says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So, here is this phrase, in all circumstances, it marks a shift from the armor to be worn, the first three pieces of armor, to be worn at all times in every aspect of life to the three pieces of armor that we are to take up specifically in times of battle. You can think of it uh, in terms of a football player 
who, when he's on the sidelines, he has his uniform on still, the first three pieces of the armor. It's still on, but his helmet is off because he's not playing. He's not in battle. But when he goes out on the field, when the Christian goes into battle, just as the football player puts on his helmet as an added element of protection, the Christian takes up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit as an added element of protection. And so in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And this leads us to the fourth defense for the Christian against the schemes of the devil. To actively place your faith in Christ. Actively place your faith in Christ. Now the shield that a Roman soldier would use, it was about a four and a half foot tall by a two and a half foot wide plank of wood. The front of it was covered with leather because the arrows would be that were flying at them would be uh, covered in pitch, which would burn hot and slowly, and it would catch everything on fire. And so it would hit the leather, and the leather would not catch fire. It would quench the fire, actually, and the, the soldier could stand behind that shield, and it would give him complete protection. In the same way, faith is our shield against the flaming arrows of temptation from the enemy. Now, what is faith? We have a definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And we'll get there eventually in our series through Hebrews on, that we are, have been going through on Sunday mornings. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So then, faith is confidence in the promises of God. Confidence in the promises of God. But it's not just mere knowledge. It's not enough to just know something is true. Think about it. When you are confident that something is true, you are willing to stand behind it. You are going to take action because of what you know is true. And the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 goes on to list Many people of great faith in the Old Testament. Eighteen times the writer of Hebrew uses the phrase, by faith. And every single time, all eighteen times that that phrase is used, it is associated with some sort of action that that person of faith did. And so faith then is not passive, it is active. We are to actively place our faith in Christ. You may be wondering, well, how is this done? How do I actively place my faith in Christ? As we saw a few weeks ago in our study through Hebrews, the writer says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so it is with confidence, the confidence that comes through faith, that we come before the Lord in our need, trusting that he will guide us and direct us in his will, trusting with all confidence that he will fight our battles and deliver us from temptation. But we must actively, not passively, place our faith in Christ for help in the time of need. 
Moving on to verse 17, Paul says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. First, we'll address the helmet of salvation. This gives us the fifth defense for the Christian against the schemes of the devil. It is to be assured of your eternal salvation. Be assured of your eternal salvation. For the Roman soldier, the helmet obviously was very important. And it was just a piece of metal that sat on your head. I mean, it, it was just a helmet. There's not much, it's not much different than what we know helmets to be today. But it protected the soldier against a lethal blow from a sword. Because if you can take off the head of the enemy, you've won the fight. There's not much of a fight left after you've decapitated the enemy. In the same manner, taking away a believer's assurance of eternal salvation is like decapitating the believer. If you take away eternal salvation, you are left with nothing. If the Christian has no assurance of an eternal salvation, there is no hope for the future. We would serve a God who is insufficient when he said upon the cross that it is finished. If we are not truly saved for all eternity as the gospel proclaims, then what else about the gospel is not true? But praise God that we, have, that we serve an all-sufficient God who has cleansed us totally from all unrighteousness, that we may sing the praises of his glory forever and ever. Praise God our salvation is not temporal, but eternal. And Paul addressed this issue with the believers at the church in Thessaloniki. They had been deceived by false teaching into believing that they had missed the second coming of Christ. Consequently, they believed they were not saved at all. They were lacking the assurance of their salvation. And Paul first corrected the false teaching, and then he addresses those believers in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. In verse 13, Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So first, Paul reminds them of their current salvation. They're the firstfruits to be saved. Verse 14, Paul goes on to say, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So after reminding them of their current salvation, he assures them that there is a future salvation as well, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So after reminding them of their current salvation in Christ and the glory that is to come, which is their future salvation, he then exhorts them to stand firm in the assurance of their salvation. So when the world tries to debunk Christianity, and it will, it always has, Stand firm in the assurance of your salvation and in the assurance of the glory that is to come. The second half of verse 17, Paul says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the final piece of armor that Paul gives us here. 
the sword of the Spirit. And it illustrates to us the sixth defense, which is immerse yourself in the Word of God. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Now, the sword that a Roman soldier would use was not like this massive broadsword that we see in uh, medieval times, but it was a short, dagger-like sword used in hand-to-hand combat. And for Christians, our sword is the word of God. And if we want to fight the spiritual battle successfully, we ought to be constantly in the scriptures, reading them, studying them, applying them, remembering them. It is not enough just to simply read the Bible to check it off of your to-do list for the day. No, we must know the word of God deeply and intimately. We must take it seriously and study it with the intention of growing more into Christ's likeness. And regarding the word of God, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Breathed out by God simply means that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is as if God himself wrote the Bible, and that is such an awesome thing, that this, this Bible, the Word of God, it's as if God wrote it himself. I've heard it said many times by many different people that if it's not in red letters... I don't need to know it. If it's not in red letters, it's not important enough for me to read it. But how untrue that is. All scripture is written by the Holy Spirit, the third person of a triune God. And if the Bible is the primary way in which God reveals himself to believers, then we should love the Bible and take every opportunity to read it and read all of it. For it is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. To store up the word in your heart simply just means to to know the word deeply, to memorize it. We see an illustration of this by Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 when he's in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. This is not going to be up on the screen. Just listen and notice how Jesus responds to the temptations of the devil. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things, all all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, 
Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Three times Satan tempted Jesus to trust in himself rather than the Father, and to worship Satan. Three times Jesus defended against these temptations by quoting scripture. So how much more should we, being mere humans, rely upon the scriptures to ward off every temptation and to fight every spiritual battle? Therefore, immerse yourself in the word of God. Coming to the last few verses here in chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, Paul says, Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So having illustrated the first six defenses against the schemes of the devil using Roman armor, Paul gives one behavior as the seventh defense for the Christian, And that is to devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. Notice four times in these verses the word all is used. Pray at all times. Pray with all prayers and supplications. Pray with all perseverance and pray for all the saints. So first, pray at all times. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 55 verse 17, Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint. And moan, and he hears my voice, he being the Lord. So in the morning, during the day, in the evening, we are to be in constant prayer in every situation of life. And pray all prayers and all supplications. What does it mean to pray all prayers? It, it really just means to pray all kinds of prayers. And to pray for everything. There is no prayer too small that God will not hear it. Pray with all perseverance. If you remember the story in Luke chapter 11 of the guy who wanted some bread and he he goes to his neighbor and he's knocking on the door and he's like, give me some bread. And his neighbor was like, no, everyone's asleep. The door's locked. The animals are put away. And uh, he's like, no, give me some bread. Give me some bread. He keeps knocking. And eventually through his persistence, the, the man gets up out of bed and gives him some bread. The point of the story is this. That we are to be persistent in prayer. Do not give up prayer, but pray without ceasing. And then pray for all the saints. Fellow believers should often be the subject of our prayers. We are not fighting a spiritual battle alone, but we should come alongside one another in prayer, making supplications for one another to stand firm in the gospel. That was Paul's request to the church in Ephesus that they pray for him to stand firm in the gospel. And so be devoted to prayer. Now what do I want from you to take? What do I want for you to take from this passage this morning? Your next step is to put on the full armor of God. We are to put on the entire armor, all six pieces of the armor, so that we have no vulnerable area of our life that the devil may get a foothold. Put on the armor permanently that you may withstand in the evil day. Remember, that's not just one day, but that is until the return of Christ. There is never a time in this life that we do not need to be prepared with the armor of God. For Satan is prowling around seeking who 
he may devour next. And lastly, the purpose of the armor is that we may be unwavering in our faith, to stand firm in our faith, constantly growing in Christ's likeness, to put Christ on display, to bring him glory. And so they're coming back up to sing another song, Let Them See You, which really illustrates why we put on the armor of God, that we may put Christ on display. You may stay seated or, or you may sing. It is your choice. But listen to the words, reflect on them, and let the words speak to your heart. Let's take a listen. Take it. 
And so, in conclusion, we put on the full armor of God that we may stand with Paul when he says, I may declare the gospel boldly as I ought to speak. We put on the full armor of God to put Christ on display that we may say, let them see you and me and let them hear you when I speak. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning of study in your word, this morning of singing praises to you, Father. It's a blessed time when the saints get together to exalt you, Lord. I pray that this time would not be in vain, but that, that your word would accomplish all that you will for it to do. Equip us with the full armor of God that we may be able to stand firm in the evil day. That we may put Christ on display. That they may see you in us. That they may hear you when we speak. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.